Welcome to our NCAA Social Series. I'm Andy Katz. Well, there are 32 Division I conferences, 32 commissioners. These are hard jobs to get. And in the Power Five, these jobs don't come open too often. But this past year, two openings did occur in the ACC and in the Pac-12. John Swafford had been the ACC commissioner since 1997. And the ACC went out of its region and plucked Jim Phillips, the Northwestern Athletic Director, to be its next commissioner. Now, the Pac-12 was led by Larry Scott. He had been the commissioner for a dozen years. And the Pac-12 went outside of college sports, although a person that was connected to college sports, the head of MGM International in Las Vegas, George Klyovkov. So in this edition of our NCAA Social Series, I bring you my conversations with Jim Phillips and George Klyovkov. Andy Katz here for the NCAA as part of our Social Series, welcoming in Jim Phillips, the newer commissioner of the ACC. You're not as new on the job now. Uh, uh, Jim, a couple things here first uh, before we get into some of the larger issues in the NCAA. Uh, what was the biggest attraction for this job for you? 15 world-class universities, 10,000 student-athletes. I think the great balance of tremendous academics and teams that chase championships uh, at the highest level. I never thought that I would leave uh, my previous spot at Northwestern, but it's the ACC, and I just feel like I've been so blessed in the eight months that I've been on the job. Um, enjoyed every minute of it, even with the turbulent times, and look forward to a lot of days ahead. So you take over a job in the middle of a pandemic, uh, which is difficult for all of us, but what's been the most challenging part of this first year? I think any of the major issues that we're faced with in college athletics, Andy, and you covered them as well as anyone, would be more than enough in a year or a few years' time. But to have five or six dropped on all of us within college athletics during the last six, 12 months in the middle of a pandemic um, has made that challenging. But in all of these ventures, I, I think there's always an opportunity to make it better the future of the NCAA, our health and safety, the social injustices. We have a chance to make a mark and improve these major areas that need attention and need leadership. And I'm really committed to that. And I know the ACC is as well and uh, look forward to making a mark in a lot of those areas. During this last 18 to 20 months for athletic directors and conference commissioners, what, what have been some of the biggest hurdles of dealing with navigating this pandemic? Well, um, just the unpredictability of the pandemic. And I think the ACC, I can speak to that in particular, and that, this is really a statement about John Swafford, the former commissioner, who I have such high regard for. He handled it out as well as anybody did last year when you think about football. Nobody played more football games than the ACC did. Um, and then into basketball season. Uh, so this opportunity to, you know, learn from our medical advisory group and, and take uh, to heart their kind of wisdom and direction, uh, that, that's helped us quite a bit. But I think we've always been an association that shares information. 
that collaborates with one another. So among commissioner lines, among conference lines, I hope that we'll continue to do that because we can learn a lot from each other's experiences. How have you handled the regional differences? I mean, certainly with this health crisis, your league stretches, you know, a lot of different kinds of states that have handled it differently. How have you managed that from a sports perspective? I think you have to defer to local authorities, local, state, and regional, and, and you know, right at home where the institutions are, are based. And not one shape fits all of us, right, in one set of policies. And so you have to have some fluidity to it. Uh, but I think it's been remarkable. I, I really give credit to the presidents and chancellors as well as the athletic directors who have to execute whatever those policies are. And those change not only, you know, month to month, but almost week to week and sometimes day to day. And so that's what I think really excites all of us about this upcoming fall in basketball and into, you know, into the winter is that we, we seem to have a pretty good handle on it and we're off to a good start with our fall sports. We hope that can carry forward into the winter seasons but we'll be ready to adjust um, appropriately if things change. All right, three big topics facing the NCAA right now. There's many, but the three uh, um, that I just discussed with uh, Mark Emmert, NCAA president. First is name, image, and likeness. Um, as I've said, you could see this at an athletic director level, on the grassroots level when you were Northwestern, uh, and now as a conference commissioner. What are the biggest issues facing NIL? Well, I don't like I told you so kind of things, but I think we all kind of feel this way within college athletics, and that was the urgency for federal legislation was lost when July 1st came. And you started to see all these wonderful stories about how our student athletes have been able to take advantage of it. And they're great, and they're fantastic, and I know that we're, we're totally supportive of that. But now you're starting to see the inequities the no local inequities when it comes to just within a department, within student athletes, who's having those opportunities, who's not. Then you look a little bit at a greater length in the conferences. Um, what works in North Carolina doesn't work in Florida and what works in Georgia doesn't necessarily work in New York and you can use your own examples. And then just the larger inequities across 352 division one schools, we want and expect federal or um, national competition, we, we, we have to have national legislation on this and we need the federal government to help us right now. And it's just been slower than any, uh, any of us w have wanted. I'm really proud of our ACC Student Athlete Advisory Group that wrote a very thoughtful letter um, to local and state and, and officials as well as our folks in Washington, D.C., stating that they need their help. It's the only way. Uh, and the longer that we go forward where we don't have federal legislation, the more inequities that you're going to see. And that has a chance to have a really painful reality to, you know, now and into the future of college athletics. So I'm hopeful we can get that national legislation uh, done in a, you know, somewhat of a reasonable time frame coming up. Jim, gender equity. Um, it's not just an issue at the postseason time of the year in the championships. Obviously, it needs to be done 
school conference level. Where do we stand right now uh, with gender equity, especially after the independent review that came out over the summer? No, I think it's, a, it's another great question, but another chance for us to, to be better. Uh, was honored to participate with the Kaplan Group. I'm a former member of the Women's NCAA Basketball Selection Committee, been a member of the Men's NCAA Basketball Committee. So uh, I think that needed to be addressed, and, and I think we're all hopeful th those corrective actions will take place. That also caused our own assessment, right? Let's not look at someone else's house if we don't have our own in order. And we started our review in the spring as well that will conclude probably at the end of the calendar year looking across all 27 of our sports in the ACC and comparing our championships, which is w what our forte is and our responsibility and what those look like uh, from a gender basis. You know, what, what, what are the differences? Are we treating our student athletes similarly? It was kind of interesting that I came in physically to Greensboro, North Carolina at the same time that the women's tournament was starting. I worked a month uh, from, from a distance and then came to North Carolina in early March and we had the women's tournament followed by the men's tournament. So I had a chance immediately to, to, to have my own kind of lens on this thing. What'd you say? I liked what we were doing, but I know we can improve. I guess that's what I would, I, how I would sum it up. And having dialogue with our coaches matters because no one's living it like they are and no one's living it like the student athletes are. So those conversations continue. And um, again, I, I really feel strongly we'll, we'll make the right corrective actions to make sure that we get that closer together. Constitution Committee, which of course you know all about, being a member. Um, what do you think needs to come out of there by the time we get to the January convention about the way Division One specifically, I think, you know, potentially could be reshaped. I think a couple markers coming up, Andy. I think November 15th is a key date, and that's when the committee brings forward some proposals and some options for the membership. That's our responsibility. It shouldn't be what this nearly 30-person committee thinks is best. I think our charge has been from Secretary Gates that we need some proposals and we need some options that the membership can flush out and decide over a period of time what they think is best that will go to the board in the middle of December and then ultimately for voting at the NCAA convention on November the 17th. I think more autonomy from a division one standpoint is necessary and probably across all three divisions that will be critical and that's where i think the really the hard the hardest work will take place between january and the middle of august to get something that's realistic that reflects modern day collegiate athletics a model that represents a 21st century kind of structure and so i remain cautiously optimistic about it these are really good people secretary gates has done a wonderful job but it's hard. It's very heavy lifting in a very short, condensed period of time. I get it with Divisions 2 and 3. Clearly, they probably are going to be on their own track uh, in some form. Division 1, how much autonomy could we see even more so than we see now with the Power 5 within Division 1? I think you're going, to have, you're, you're going to see that pushed forward. I really do. To what level, I'm not sure. I don't want to speak without, you know, others within Power 5 and FBS having a voice to this thing, as well as the, the, the whole 32. 
but maybe there's another subdivision or two within Division I more than we have right now. Maybe not, I'm not sure, but we'll get into that as we go forward uh, and a chance for us really to reflect what college athletics looks like now and what we want it to look like into the future. Before I let you go, what do you want it to look like? Something that's supportive of our student athletes, something that allows them to have tremendous experiences, but also keeps whole this idea that college athletics is worth us fighting for. Access and affordability, I've said it multiple times, are really the beauty of this collegiate model. For a group of young people to have access to higher education that may have never had that opportunity, and for it to be affordable for families that may not have ever had the chance to put a son or daughter through school, that's what we all believe in. And this isn't professional sports, and people may think maybe it is, and maybe we've done some things to harm ourselves in that area, but this is a chance for a little bit of a recorrection and a stabilization of what the collegiate model looks like and what the future of college athletics could be. Appreciate it, Jim. As always, thanks, Andy. Pleased to be joined by new Pac-12 Commissioner George Klyovkov. Uh, and George, um, this was a change for you, a career change. Yes, it was. Uh, after everything that you've been doing in Las Vegas, uh, in the entertainment world, the sports entertainment world, uh, what was the lure to go into college sports and accept this job? Well, it's really about the mission of the Pac-12 and the broader mission of college athletics. I think if I do my job well and my colleagues do their jobs well, we end up creating scholarships for student athletes and you know nothing's more important than that. So I'm excited about the mission of the Pac-12 and I think I went from the best job in entertainment to the best job in sports. Why is that? Well, because of the mission specifically, but also because of our universities. Uh, I think the Pac-12 is a very special place. World-class universities, folks that get an education from one of those universities start out on third base. So I wanna help kids do that. You obviously were well-versed in the college space, running those facilities essentially in Las Vegas. What did you gain in terms of knowledge of the league as it changed and added Utah and Colorado and, and really coming into Las Vegas? Because that is sort of a newer thing where they move the championship there, the football game, uh, and really trying to put a footprint in there. Well, I think it provides an opportunity to just play at a higher level. I think um, for us, uh, the idea of applying entertainment to what we do and elevating the fan experience when people come to our games is a big opportunity, and it's one of the things I learned when I was working in Vegas. The college space now has certainly changed and continues to change. Um, as you take on this new challenge as one of the five Power Five uh, commissioners, uh, what do you think are some of the biggest obstacles and hurdles that you're going to face? Well, my timing was impeccable. Uh, my first day on the job was July 1st, which obviously was the first day that our student athletes could take advantage of their personal brands, get paid for their name, image, and likeness without losing their eligibility. But remember, in the couple weeks before I started, we had the Supreme Court decide the Alston case, which I think is going to direct a lot of the future of college sports. We also had the announcement of the potential of expanding the CFP. And in the couple of weeks after I started, we had the leak of Texas and Oklahoma leaving the Big 12 to go to the SEC, and obviously that started a bunch of realignment talk. And we also had the NCAA starting a constitutional convention to decide the future of, of um, how the governance model will work for college athletics. So that and kind of figuring out the alliance, which we announced, is really a half dozen 
massive issues that are all happening at the same time in college athletics this summer. And for me, the interesting part about it is learning how they're all intertwined. Uh, they all touch each other, and the decisions you make on one, it's like playing three-dimensional chess, has effects on the other. So let's start with one of those hot topics, and that is NIL. Yep. Um, how do you think it will affect uh, the student-athlete experience, and especially, obviously, the Pac-12 schools? Yeah, I think it's a big growth opportunity for the Pac-12. It's an opportunity to separate ourselves. Uh, for us, we're very much in favor of our student-athletes being able to do what all of the other students on campus can do, and that is monetize their name, image, and likeness. We draw a very, very fine line that we do not believe that it should be used for inducement or pay for play. But as long as it's not being used for those two purposes, we support it. We're trying to do everything we can at the conference to support it as our individual schools put in place programs to educate their kids about what it means for them. Uh, at the conference, as an example, uh, we own all of our media rights, un unlike many of the other conferences. So what we've been able to do is use the Pac-12 networks to create highlight packages for every one of our kids. And they get access to those for free to help elevate their brands on social media. And then when they do a legitimate NIL deal that's approved by the school, the company that they've done a deal with can come license their highlights you know, for a fair price and use those to promote their products and services. And I would say one other thing about NIL and the Pac-12 is we operate um, in the Mountain and Pacific time zones. Today, there are no other uh, Power Five schools in those time zones. Maybe BYU eventually joins the Big 12 and changes that. But today, we have all of the Power Five schools. And those two time zones include five of the top 20 demographic markets in the country. And we should be able to take advantage of that. I just want to pick up one quick thing you said earlier, which is the pay for play not going to happen. Uh, Pac-12 universities have consistently valued that student student athlete experience yeah. and have really put a strong emphasis on being a student athlete. As you were interviewing for this job, what, what did you hear from those presidents about making sure that that was understood, that these universities are universities first? Well, I confirmed that uh, when I was interviewing with the presidents and chancellors who are my bosses now. That was the question. The question is, are you committed to the collegiate model? Are you committed to making sure that our student athletes are students first, athletes second, and that uh, their athletic experience is part of a broad student experience on campus that includes all the education that we can provide at these fine institutions? I would say that that's also um, like-minded among the 41 institutions that make up the alliance. You know, the Big Ten and the ACC and uh, the Pac-12 chancellors and commissioners agree on that. And I think that that was a strong foothold for why the alliance works. Gender equity, yeah. uh, another hot topic right now. Obviously, we know what happened last March with the two tournaments. Uh, but gender equity isn't just about the postseason. Yeah. It starts at the university and conference level. What is the Pac-12 doing to ensure there's gender, gender equity from the ground up? Well, we do it in everything we think about. Every time we talk about women's athletics, we talk about gender um, equity and what are we doing for the men and what should we be doing for the women. Uh, with respect to the NCAA gender equity report that just came out, I went through that report and uh, agree with almost all of the findings. You know, agree that March Madness should apply to both the men's and the women's tournament, and we've already made that move. Agree that the structure of the NCAA event coordination team should be such that they're talking to each other and making sure that the uh, facilities are, you know, equal. Um, a, a lot of the recommendations seem to me to make sense, to separate out the women's basketball tournament and sell that separately, as opposed to bundle in with all of the other championships. Um, the one area where we're kind of 
trying to decide whether or not to support uh, the decision, the recommendation, is to combine in one location the final fours for both the men and the women. That could be beneficial. It could not be beneficial. I could see ways where that might actually be a disservice to the women. And I'm collecting information from the smartest people in uh, women's basketball to understand whether or not we should be supporting that recommendation. And obviously the Pac-12 is uh, highly successful in women's basketball with Arizona and Stanford, obviously, uh, last uh, April and Stanford winning the national championship. Um, all right, last topic. You mentioned the Constitution Committee uh, that will develop over the next couple of months, and there's going to be probably Division Two and Three may do their own thing, which is clearly understandable. Division One may want to separate to some degree, and there may be even within Division One because not all things are the same. Uh, there could be some uh, different pods, if you will, of, 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 of governance. What, what do you see potentially happening as this unfolds? Yeah, so as an outside business person coming into college athletics, when this um, started in mid-July, you know, I looked at what the NCAA does and tried to understand why there is a single organization that sits over all of Division One, Two, II, and Three, because we are in very different business models. Uh, we operate uh, for different reasons, different purposes, and different models. And I think separating Division One, Two, II, and Three makes all the sense in the world for their own governance to have autonomy over governing themselves. Uh, I think even when I look at Division One, as you mentioned, I think there is certainly a different business model between the schools that play football and don't play football and between schools that are um, in, in the FBS and are not in the FBS. And there are natural lines where you would draw a governance structure. Um, when you do that, the things that kind of fall out of that are how will revenues be distributed? Because today a percentage of the revenue generated at the NCA gets shared with Division Two and Division Three, even though it's generated by Division One. And you also have the issue of automatic qualifiers because if you go smaller than Division I uh, for a governance structure, will all of the Division I conferences still get AQs for certain sports? So have to work through all of that. Um, you know, my mind says natural areas to cut the governance is either all of FBS or all of Division I, and we have to work through what the proper solution is. One quick thing just on this topic of just, you mentioned the regionalization I was thinking about or, or the different missions. What do you think the chances are that we could see at some point for the Olympic sports, for lack of a better term, you know, used to be called non-revenue, but more Olympic sports, where they could be more regionalized rather than in some of these leagues that you're not a commissioner of. You know, you have schools that are playing in New England, you know, playing schools in Texas in Olympic sports when it just doesn't make sense cost-wise. Um, what are the chances we could see that in the future where some of those sports just end up being more regional and then you go to a national competition? Yeah, I, I think that's not for me to opine on what other conferences might choose to do about the way they organize themselves. But I will tell you, uh, travel expenses for all of our sport were one of the things that we considered and put on the scale when we were deciding whether or not to expand the Pac-12. And those are real issues. And if they're real issues for us, for smaller conferences with less resources, they must be tremendous issues. How excited are you to just sort of dive into all these? Yeah. I mean, like you said, right when you started, all these things were happening. I, I, I love it. I've made a career parachuting into places where things were in the middle of disruption uh, and, and had a pretty good outcome in most of the places I've been in. What, what I would say is I usually like to deal with two or three of these game-changing issues at once. Doing a half dozen all at the same time is new, but it's really fun. Appreciate it, George. Thank you. Yeah, good to see you. Thanks for watching this edition of our NCAA Social Series. 
As always, you can go to ncaa.org slash social series, where you will find all of our social series archived. Thanks for watching.